welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media today on the show. Danny LaRue is here. It's been a while since you've been on the Game Theory Podcast, Danny. I wanted to have you on for a few reasons, mostly because I wanted to do a home-and-home podcast. It's been a while since we've been able to do that, but also because you have fascinating candy takes that I have to hear about, because you just told me that while you were writing your book, what, what did you eat? Explain this to me again. Explain this to the listeners as someone who is a connoisseur of candy. <laughs> well, I'm not, actually. I So I have tried – I started about five years ago. I tried to not eat candy. Not anymore, but, you know, that that's sort of an idea of it's not a hard ban, but it's a, 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 soft, a soft cap. Let's put it that way. Um, but when I was writing, when I was writing my book, uh, Under Things Warriors Fan Should Know and Do Before They Die, available in bookstores and on Amazon, um, you – I, I, it's a very stressful process, and kind of you need something to cut the edge very quickly. And so I ate large amounts of peanut butter M&Ms and Swedish fish. And I acknowledge the limitations of Swedish fish, just for whatever reason they calmed me. And so I had I had a lot of both of those, like big bags. Oh, see, like, I if I was you, I would have no problem admitting that you are a candy eater. Because I myself am a voracious candy eater. Uh, I... Well, my, my my thing my thing with this, and you know you know me personally, you'll know that this isn't a surprise. Is that I try to limit anything that could be a potential vice. So yeah. like all that stuff, I, I I've only had like let's say ten to fifteen sodas in the last couple of years, like all those sorts of things. And then but then I I eat hilarious quantities of food from time to time. So um that that's how I kind of get get my fix in there. See, like what you do is something that I should do. Like, I really should be better about eating candy. And the thing about soda is something, like, I don't really drink soda anymore. Like, I used to not really drink, or I used to drink a lot of soda when I was a kid, and then I stopped it when I got to college, and then I used to drink soda while I was drinking. And I'll get vodka sodas from time to time now, but, like, it's like, you know, soda water or whatever it is, right? Or I'll get, like, a vodka Sprite or something. But... I don't do soda anymore, and most of it has just been taken over by candy. I, I will eat – like, I have a thing of caramel M&Ms right next to me right now. I have uh, a big thing of uh, Swedish fish, like, around constantly, you know, is someone that – I kind of agree with you, too. Oh, like, oh, you, so, you, so you're a Swedish fish supporter. Interesting. So explain your take on Swedish fish, please, because you I, kind of mentioned it before the podcast, I, and I agree with it, actually. They're – they're, I mean, so they're not the like the most like extreme candy, you know. So like you can think of candy as being like insanely sweet or sour. I mean, going back to when we were kids and there were warheads and all those type of things. Swedish fish are a little bit more neutral. Like they're 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 just not prominent in flavor, and it's not like it's a ridiculous sort of thing. But I just find them comforting, you know. It's just like you just pop one in every once in a while. They're a good size. However, I will say, and this is interesting, my by far favorite candy is 100 grand. I just I just really like 100 grand. I think that its combination of flavors is good. I think that that's just that's my go-to, but it's a hard thing to eat. You know, like it's not a, it's not it's it's a more deliberate thing. It's not like, "Oh, I'm going to grab some M&Ms and eat them." It's like, "Okay, I'm going to have a 100 grand bar now if that's what I'm going to do." See, for me, candy tends to come during movies and obviously you know, as people who know me, you know me well. I oh, watch you, a lot of but movies. you see so few movies, Sam. Right. So like what I, I used to eat a lot of Reese's Pieces, and what you obviously mentioned, liking the chocolate and peanut butter idea. Um, I have since changed to Gobstoppers under the ridiculous, and I understand it's absurd, but under the idea that because you have to like keep a Gobstopper in your mouth longer, it thus involves you consuming less sugar and like less things that are bad for you. So like I'll go through maybe... I don't know, 15 gobstoppers during a movie. And I'll do that instead of eating like an entire bag of Reese's Pieces. Well, here, here's a question I have for you. Are there any, and I, I don't even know a good answer for myself. So when you turn this around, I'll be in trouble. But are there any candies that you actively dislike that are just, that are just abhorrent to you? I don't like lemon flavored things in general. Mm -hmm. So like any sort of lemon flavored, um, candy or like runts or whatever like that like i will just move those to the side lemon skittles as well like i won't eat those 
Um, I think all Skittles taste about the same. However, I do not think all Starbursts taste the same. Yeah, lemon Starbursts. I don't do lemon Starbursts. Um, I'm trying to think. The, really, it's flavor. I like things that have sugar for the most part. I'm not as, like, enthused by a lot of chocolate. Uh, or or, like, or tart. You don't, you're not a big fan of tart? No, not really. Like, I can do tart, but, like, I like the watermelon sour patch kids. I think those are really good, but, like, it's... It's tart at the start, and then it's just, like, all sugar afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, it's mostly, like, I like the sugar candy things. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I gobstoppers have just become, like, a vice for me, realistically. Like, my wife yells at me because we have, like, four boxes of gobstoppers in the house right now. <laughs> oh, I realized my answer, and this is going to be... One of the hotter takes. But this is just a personal preference thing. I'm not saying it for anybody else. This is a podcast for takes. We're here for it. I I know. I I was the inaugural guest on the show. I understand the conceit. Yeah. Um, I am not personally a fan of, and this is that gets into a more complicated thing, of nuts really like in other things. So like, for example, oh, I don't strong really agree Snickers. on this. No, I, I'm I, with so you I on don't this. really enjoy Snickers and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I like a hundred grand because hundred grand is rice, chocolate and caramel. So it has none of that kind of stuff. Uh, so that, that for me, however, nut butters are totally fine because they're smooth and all that kind of stuff. Like, so peanut butter, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. um, but so yeah, basically any of those candies. So like, for example, mounds versus almond joy. I, I mean, that's, that's an easy choice for me. A lot of those other type of things. And, and it is kind of – it's fun within an ecosystem because a lot of times, I mean, when we were kids for Halloween or even now, a lot of people really like those types of things. Like so – or yeah. Mr. Good Bars, which have peanuts in them or any number of other ones. And I just steer away from those, let other people have them. Yeah, no, and it's not that I'll turn down a Snickers if oh, I get I will. it. I will, not, I will not eat one unless I have to. Yeah, like and I will Why would it? I have to eat a Snickers? Right. But I'm not going to like enjoy it as much as I enjoy other things. But I'm such an addict at this stage that I will eat it, and it's in front of me, and I will eat it. Um, oh, I, I will give you one stray thought that is only tangentially candy-related. I just went to, to Europe for the first time, and I this was not a surprise to me because I've heard it from a lot of people who have been, is that whether it's in candy form or in, like, hot chocolate form or anything else, the – Let's call it the expected value of chocolate there is so dramatically higher than the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just, we just tolerate yeah. so much worse for that. And what's it's the same with the, Australia, too. Yes. Well, because they get a lot of their stuff from Britain, from what I recall, is, yeah. um, is that what, what's interesting in, in Europe, from what I could tell, and obviously a small sample and all that, is the intensity of the chocolate changed a lot, but the quality was always pretty good. And I thought that was really interesting, whereas in the U.S., like, the quality can change a lot, and the intensity is, you know, it's never really that nuts unless you deliberately buy the crazier stuff. Yeah, like, as someone who bakes a lot, like, I do end up buying some of the, like, darker, intense chocolate just because, you know, some of it is better to temper, some of it is better to um, better to not have that, like, ridiculous level of sweetness whenever you're already working with so much sugar. But you, you can find those things, but they tend to be super expensive. And even the dark chocolate quality in Australia, it's a little bit better, I think. I don't know why necessarily, especially if it's like the same percentage well, of cacao. I, I, can, I can tell you why, and I think it's because the American consumer is willing to tolerate worse stuff. You know, like it's – and that's true, I mean, with our reliance on high fructose corn syrup and a lot of other stuff, which yeah. I think is, you know, it is an inferior way to sweeten things. And I, I apologize to the great people of Iowa, but so be it. Um it, it, and so we we're willing to tolerate things like that, especially because co- it seems like cost is more important to us than quality. So that's how we get these we get flooded with all of that all that kind of low end sweet stuff because we're willing to we're willing to take it. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And you know, it's a good thing that the first sponsor today is Policy Genius because you know we're going to need life insurance, or at least I am probably because of all this candy and life insurance is a deeply unfun topic. Most people don't like thinking about dying and they definitely don't like thinking about insurance, Uh, but actually having life insurance feels great and getting that peace of mind doesn't need to be complicated. Policy genius is the easy way to get life insurance in minutes. You can compare quotes from top insurers to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford and policy genius 
doesn't just make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income, homeowner's insurance, or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. Uh, if you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com and get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. We're going to talk about the NBA at some point here. Uh, I, I would say probably starting now. And the first thing that I think yeah, we have I, to discuss. I, I, thought, I thought you were going to do a transition from life insurance into Travis Schlenk's job. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that Travis is in trouble, but I do think it is fascinating that Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the Pistons and the Hawks are engaged in an Andre Drummond-centered uh, deal. It's not that one is imminent. Like, it's not going to happen, I think, by the time this podcast is published. Having said that, it's fascinating to me from both sides of the spectrum, if only because I think that it says so many different things about where the league is now and what the league is going to be like over the course of the next year, let's say, as we go through this coming offseason, as we go through uh, what is a down draft, a down free agency. When I look at it from the Hawks' perspective, what worries me is that if I'm the Hawks, there's no circumstance where I am doing an Andre Drummond deal now. I am waiting until the summer. I want to know where my draft pick is going to be. I want to know what exactly is on the free agency market because they're one of like two or three teams this summer that has genuine access to cap space, genuine optionality in free agency because of their positional structure with regard to how their roster is right now, and a high draft pick to use potentially in deals, potentially in uh, you know building a roster by selecting a player. I find it fascinating that they would consider going down this road now. And I think it says one of the other interesting things that should scare the shit out of Atlanta fans. I wonder if this says ownership is putting pressure on Schlenk to be better now as opposed to trying to be better into the future because they have been such a disaster this season. They are the worst team in the NBA. They are terrible defensively. Um, They have dealt with the Collins suspension and injuries. I get that. But apparently there is also, according to Sham Sharania, uh, where we work at The Athletic, according to Jeff Schultz at the AJC, there's been some sort of issue in regard to the coaching staff connecting to some of the players I just wonder if this thing is just a great big old mess and ownership is like, all right, we need to get better players in there now as opposed to playing the long game and using their flexibility this summer intelligently. I'm not saying he is in this situation because I don't have intel and anything like that, but the scariest place for the fan base of a team to be is a general manager that thinks his job is on the line. Because that is the sort of circumstance where a, a team makes moves in focusing on the short term when they probably should not. A great example of this would be Brian Colangelo in his last years in Toronto. Like He actually did a decent job in the early going, but those late years it was basically trying to scramble to keep his job. And that's when general managers make bad moves because they're trying to get better, they're trying to keep it, and they sabotage it. I mean, you could talk about the Josh Smith contract and numerous other ones. There, there's so many you could go through in the past. And the reason a team with cap space would make a trade for a pending free agent, there are, there are two basic reasons. One is that you think having them makes it more likely that they will resign. This was the logic beyond having Kawhi Leonard of the Raptors trading yeah. for Kawhi Leonard. It was the idea that Kawhi Leonard is not going to consider you unless he has such a positive experience Paul George in Oklahoma City is another great example here, the first, you know, before he, when he resigned. And the other reason is because they can help you now. And the Hawks are 7 and 27. They are in I mean they got John Collins back now, but they're, you know, they're 20 games under 500 even though the bottom of the East is a garbage circus and one of the top 2 teams in that bottom picture just lost a key player for at least 2 months. It's still almost impossible to imagine the Hawks getting back into that mix. They so, are farther out of the playoffs than any team in the NBA right now. Like even the teams at the bottom of the correct. West, they are like the Warriors right now are somehow, some way only six and a half games out of the playoffs, which if they stay, if they can get it to like five games out of the playoffs, I really wonder what happens post all-star break. 
with yeah, like Steph I mean, and with Clay and especially guys. when they've looked they've looked better when they've been closer to healthy and they'll probably at least be at that point. Like when they looked worst was when basically everybody was out and you know that'll still happen from time to time as it did when they got beat by the Wolves on on Thursday. But yeah, that that's that's a really good point. And so But yeah, the Hawks are 8 games we, out of the playoffs right now. Yeah, it, it reeks of a desperation move. I mean, because even the the reason that it's a desperation move is that even if the Hawks are better than they've been, and even with Andre Drummond, they're still not getting that that close. And as you brought up, at the position of center where supply outpaces demand by the most, there is not a clear incentive to picking now. Like you, the it is a buyer's market on centers, and the Hawks have. My projection before, if depending on what happens for now, is about seventy-three million in space. And so you can make an argument, even if you sign Drummond, whether that's as a free agent or acquiring him now and then resigning him, they still have more money than they know what to do with. And and there is there is a point there. But my counterpoint is, if you're going to give up any sort of asset to make that happen, then you're making a mistake because the, so the parallel here, in some ways, is to Philadelphia with Tobias Harris. So. Remember what happened here, that Philadelphia, even if Jimmy Butler had re-signed, which he did not, obviously, they still would have had the cap space to sign Tobias Harris outright. But they thought that having him in the fold, getting that potential fifth year through bird rights, and getting him for an extra year, that that was, uh, that that was necessary. And so they gave up a bunch of assets, including draft picks and Landry Shamet, to the Clippers to make that happen. And they had much clearer incentives because they were actually a good team. And they, Elton Brand thought they were closer to figuring out what they were. And so they made the move. I disagreed with it vehemently. I still do. I think they gave up too much for somebody they could have signed, especially when it was pretty clear that the Clippers did not want to give him a five-year max. But think about how – so that was a deal that was defensible, but I disagreed with. This is far different than that on the same kind of line. Yeah, now we have the Chris Haynes report that says, like, Andre Drummond is really good friends with Trey Young, and, like, that could be something worth considering. Oh, are we are, is, is, are we getting into the player, the young player gets voiced in the process early? Because, I mean, the times when those sorts of things happen, it almost always works out poorly. I mean, like, you know, like the when the player exerts a voice in the process to get somebody that they like. You know, like even like there was this idea that LeBron had a voice in the process for the 2018 Lakers offseason. Well, if he did, then that was a disaster. Right. So, like, if you're the Hawks here and if you're the Pistons, too, I mean, like, what what even does an Andre Drummond deal look like, I guess, is my question. Oh, well, that, that because... I, can, I, can get, I can get into part of that. Okay, so Drummond makes 27.1 million well, this year. It's obviously just Chandler Parsons is the salary match. Like you can make you can make the structure of well, it. Well, no, work. you you would actually you would probably do it with Turner or Crab if you could because then it would save the Pistons more money and then they could use the mid-level. Like the, and the Hawks can take on the Hawks can take on salary. That's not a problem. So I would actually oh, yeah, go, that's more a good in, point. go more in that direction, save them a little bit of money, and then for the Hawks, the opportunity cost there if you save the Pistons money, maybe you don't have to give up as much in the way of assets. Um so, that, so the, that's so that's part of it. I guess that's my thing. Like, who? What are the sweeteners? Yeah, yeah the, the like sweetener, the sweeteners in this are a little bit wild if you think about it. So the Hawks, let's talk about their draft picks. So they have all their own picks. I think all of those are too strong to give to the Pistons as compensation. Like that would be a big mistake. They have Brooklyn's first. The next year they make the playoffs. That very well could be this year. So that could end up being like the 15 or 16 pick. Then the right. only other draft assets that they have outside of their own is they have. Um, the Hawks have Oklahoma City's 2022 first if if the if the Thunder make the playoffs. Otherwise, it becomes two seconds, and then they have a few stray seconds deep into the future. And then they have a bunch of young players on roster. You know, like maybe maybe the Pistons would have an interest in Bembry, who is a pending restrictive free agent. If they wanted to move somebody like Herder or Reddish, they could do so. Um, but I, I think really what this would be from the Pistons' perspective is something pretty close to a salary dump, unless the Hawks are willing to give up something of value, which I think would be a mistake. I guess Bruno Fernando. So I yeah, mean, like I, part of it. That, that's what I'm struggling with. I guess is what well, there's no way the well, Hawks. He, he, there's no he, way the Hawks he, give up Herder, Collins, DeAndre Hunter. 
Right, and I, would, I can't imagine they would I, give I, up Cam I, I agree with you. I think those are off the table, and then I think Reddish would be a hard sell considering they drafted him high. And that's a quick quick thing to get back on the Hawks before we jump on the Pistons here, is I brought up the idea of like a GM potentially managing for his job and being a little bit desperate. Remember how much latitude Travis Schlenk had about a half a year ago when he moved up to number four to draft DeAndre Hunter. They gave up a bunch of assets, took on bad salary to do so. Shit, and this was six months ago. What well, even a year ago? That's what's crazy. Exactly. And then they used their cap space. You know, they took on they took on some guys. They signed Jabari Parker, all this sort of stuff. It, Travis Schlenk made moves last summer like he had a lot of job security. And to me, the general look of this Drummond negotiation, even just that the negotiations are happening, is a sign that it's that that maybe we're in a different place, or they just really overvalue Andre Drummond, which is something that has happened before. I, I think almost every, it feels like a lot of people are higher on Drummond because while he is a wonderful rebounder, I mean his rebounding numbers are unbelievable this year. I don't think, based on what we know so far, that his presence makes you a solid defense, and I don't think his presence makes you a solid offense. And so that to me, if a player doesn't check either of those boxes, they're not super valuable. So with Drummond, I guess that the way that you sell Andre Drummond is that he is certainly gotten better from the free throw line to where he's no longer a liability, which is huge. Like the last three years, him getting to 62% or whatever he's at, that's been really important. The fact that you can run legit dribble handoff actions, the fact that you can give him the ball at the top of the three-point line and he can make decisions on some level, that's important. That's a big part of why I think he can be valuable. One thing worth noting is that the turnovers have spiked in a substantial way. And I think that a lot of people when valuing players don't look at turnovers nearly enough. Like I think that it says so much about how a guy is operating and how a guy makes decisions. How often does he give the team the ball? How often does he give the other team the ball? That's a huge part of how effective a player can be. Um, I just look at Andre Drummond and I think people are way overvaluing defensive rebounding if you look at uh his offensive rebounding is actually down this year and that's the that's the valuable part of rebounding for me especially once you hit a certain threshold of defensive rebounding like really uh you can build a defensive rebounding scheme around Drummond he's probably one of the few guys where you don't have to have like a team of guys uh defensive rebounding and then can play transition offense which I think is interesting um but really with Trey Young I think you want the guy who's like a really good defensive rebounder and a guy who can set screens and run dribble handoff stuff on offense. But if I'm the Hawks, I I don't love this if only because I am worried about the defensive side of the ball, as you mentioned. You have Trey Young, who is a defensive sieve right now. There's just not really another way to put it. Kevin Herter is at least like positionally smart, but he's not going to be a difference maker defensively. Cam Reddish tries on defense. I will give him that. He's maybe an interesting defender. DeAndre Hunter is just a straight good defender. But John Collins is also not a good defender. So you're talking about three guys where they are a substantial part of your core going forward. Trey Young, Kevin Herter, and John Collins. Those guys are not good defenders. So how do you how do you plan to build a good defense with only DeAndre Hunter in your starting five, basically, being a, being a plus on defense? Well, and even think about it from a floor spacing perspective or an offensive perspective. Yeah, you can do some of the dribble handoff stuff with Drummond. He's not a, a really a threat to shoot the ball, though he maybe thought he was at some point in his career going even back to those workouts before he was drafted. And so what does that mean in terms of doubling? Like, So let's say they run an action involving Drummond and Trey Young. If a team doubles Trey Young or does a hedge and recover, and yeah, I mean, so they get Drummond can get the ball and maybe do something, but there there's going to be a lot of pressure on him and he can't take that as a jump shot so it it gets into like a couple dribbles and a good decision or something else and it's a lot harder to make that system work offensively and you're also you know tying tying up some of your spacing I mean a lot of those kind of issues but the other part of this which I think is a a big picture potential problem from just kind of in, in a process standpoint as opposed to a results one from the Hawks is, yes, Andre Drummond is, is younger. This is, I believe, his age 26 season. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's younger than most guys that are going to be pending unrestricted free agents because he has that player option. But he's still significantly older than the Hawks core. So for basketball reference ages, Trey Young, 21, John Collins, 22, DeAndre Hunter, 22, Cam Reddish, 20, Herder, 21. 
he's older than those guys. And something to remember is I I, I credit Kevin Pelton with this because he's the guy who articulated in the way that I was my caveman brain was able to understand, which is how players' primes work. And so basically, what happens is a player's generally speaking, their athletic prime is when they come into the league or even before that because they're, you know, they're bouncier, they haven't had as many injuries, all that kind of stuff. And you can measure that through through things like rebounding. Rebounding, incidentally, can, for Drummond, is one of the key examples. Then what happens is the degradation of athleticism is slow when you're younger and then faster when you're, when you're older. So the skill development and mental element of the game, those those improvements outpace the physical decline. And so what a prime is, is it's when the mental and skill growth is still going higher than the athleticism is declining. Then at some point, you can't get that much better and your body gets worse. And then that's when a player declines. So with Drummond, when his strength is built primarily on his physical tools, you could see that drop happen faster. So yes, he is 26. Totally agree. But from a prime perspective, he is an old 26. And so if you pay him, and remember, if they sign him to a new contract, presumably that's going to be a three or four or five year contract, you're probably, even though in most conventional terms, you're getting his prime years, my theory would be that you're probably getting a lot of post-prime there too. I think you're 100% right on that. Uh, And yeah, if I was the Hawks, the more I think about this, I I would not be that intrigued by this. I would just. No, wait. I would do this as a salary dump. If they if they said, "Hey, we'll give you assets because we want to be under the luxury tax," sure, by all means. But it also gets you into the trap of, well, what about resigning him? So, I, like, I, I would even be scared, and this is not going to be the deal. If I were the, if I were a Hawks fan, I'd be a little bit scared of a deal that looks favorable to them because of what it could mean. So, like, let's say it's Crab for Drummond, straight up, which is not a deal that the Pistons would do because that's giving up in a, in a way that they are not. Right. Um, if I'm the Hawks, you're kind of, I would be a fan of the team saying, oh, crap, like, does this mean that we're basically wink, wink, nudge, nudge, resigning him at a high number? And that's the other thing that I want to get into. Is, so, so this is not, this is a pretty awful free agent class. Here are some of the other bigs that are available in this class. Derek Favors is unrestricted, a little bit older than Drummond. Serge Ibaka you know, whether he's a straight five or not is an open question. A little bit older than Drummond as well. Marcus Ole, way older, but probably going to get a shorter contract. Montrez Harrell, Hassan Whiteside. Mason Plumley could actually be on a shorter-term contract. Kind of interesting. Canner, Aaron Baines, standout of the early part of the season. And so, yes, Drummond is, I would say, in expected value over the next four years, is probably the best of those guys. And you could throw Jakob Pertl in if you think the Spurs would not match an offer sheet at a certain number. But is Drummond as much better than those guys than the expected salary difference between them? I would say no. I could be wrong, but my instinct is no. I agree with you. If I was the Hawks, I would much rather try and give up something of value for Aaron Baines. I would and just like try and well, or or just way overpower the dice, say we have more money than anybody else. There are more centers than anything else. Let's just see who ends up getting left in the cold. Right. They, they can they can do that easily. And right. instead of striking at the top of the market, wait for the bottom. And very few teams can do that. And remember, with seventy three million in space, they could theoretically, if there was somebody they actually like, just go like a few dollars over the whatever mid-level exception that guy is getting offered, and it's going to be a more lucrative offer. And if you need to go a million or two over that, okay, we're in the 10 to $12 million range, as opposed to Drummond, who might get 20 Okay, I'm going to throw names at you. Would you rather sign, and I think these numbers are higher than what these players should get. Because I think Andre, I think Andre Drummond, you're probably going to have to pay... $28 million a year. Like, I think that's where that deal starts. It's possible. I, I mean, especially if he gets the Tobias Harris leverage. If he gets the, the hey, I, and remember, the Hawks are almost definitely going to be better moving forward than they are right now. So yep. then his agents can say, look at how much better you were once you got Drummond. And wouldn't it be, wouldn't and it be bad? compelling sell to, to the owners. Players? Yeah, and so, you have more money than you know what to do with. Why not get a player who actually wants to be there? So I'm going to throw a name for at that. you. Would you okay. rather have Aaron Baines for $15 million a year at 33 years old next season? Or, and let's let's say you have to sign Aaron to a 
three years forty five. Let's say three years. Let's do let's do number of years number of years and starting salary. That's the easiest way to do this for listeners. Okay, so Aaron Baines three years two guaranteed starting salary fifteen million dollars. Okay, or Andre Drummond at let's say twenty eight million. Baines, I agree. Would you at least then you can get out of it earlier? And remember, Baines, if they trade for him, might be a five year contract. Would you rather have Montrez Harrell? At 25, a deal, let's say a deal starting at $23 million a year for four years, or Andre Drummond at $30 million, or, you know, a deal starting at $29 million. See, there I'd probably rather have Drummond because I don't have faith in Harrell. I have more faith in Drummond defensively than Harrell. I agree but with you it, for what it's worth. It's a, clo- it, it's a closer call, and I could see if Harrell's market drops out a little bit, I could see him getting to a number that I would rather have him. But it's just, it's not $23 million. It's not even close. If you had to give up. Cam Reddish and Bruno Fernando for Steven Adams. Would you do it? Versus signing Drummond to that Versus contract? Versus signing Drummond to that contract. So let me let me pull up Steven Adams' contract terms. I believe it's two more years at 25, right? Yeah, I mean, giving up Reddish hurts a little bit. It's not like he's been amazing this year. Um, Steven Adams, so after this season, it's one more year at 27-5. Um, I would rather have Adams just because you get more optionality. I mean, you're not tied in. You're not tied into a player if it doesn't work out. You just move on. And remember, the Hawks have 73 million this summer. They could have a ton of money in 21 if they want. Trying to think, what other? Would you rather have Mason Plumley at the slightly more than mid-level exception or Andre Drummond? Oh, jeez. I mean, I I think I'd probably rather there would be the would he be the second or third Plumley to go through there? He'd definitely be at least the second. Second, um, yeah, because Marshall was uh, never there. I don't think. Yeah, Marshall was. I don't think Marshall was ever there. Um, I I think I especially if we're getting into the four or five year range for Drummond, I think I'd rather have Plumley. And remember that if you sign a player for that ten to twelve million, incidentally, this is happening right now with the Nuggets. You could bring somebody in over top, and they can't really complain that much. You know, that's that's more fringe backup starter money right now. So I think that you can get into that range. Whereas with Drummond, you're, you're committing and. If the center market is as weak as I think it could be, then at least that gives some flexibility. And then remember the other gigantic point here. You brought this up. The Hawks might have a really good draft pick, and it might be that the best player on the board is a center who is a more logical fit than Andre Drummond. What happens if James Wiseman is on the board and some of the other guys are not? Well, and so here then, here is what I would here is what I would pitch to you on that. I would rather spend the draft capital on a wing and take a high upside shot at a wing because those guys so just don't come point. along in free agency, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good um, point. The last one I'm going to throw at you, Derek Favors is from Atlanta. Yes, he is. I've been I've been wondering about that possibility for a few years now. Three years guaranteed deal starting at $21 million. Favors or that deal for Drummond? That's a tough call. Um, I think I'd probably go with Favors just because of the length. I think that would be that would be there. And Favors, we we haven't really gotten a chance to see this. I, I think Drummond is pro- is probably a superior offensive player, but Favors hasn't really had the opportunity that Drummond did last year, so maybe he could thrive a little bit with it. And I like I like Favors better defensively than Drummond personally, but I would need to do more digging to see if my eye test is right. I would rather have favors on that deal i think personally um yeah, and, and see and see here's the other point and I, I said this earlier but it's worth if this trade ever ends up happening banging a drum on is the hawks can just choose the best value of all of these guys it's not they don't have to do a series of one versus one propositions and including if the market dries up for drummond like they could theoretically it, it's a lot easier to underpay a guy when he wasn't already on your team because it's not like they need bird rights in any way shape or form they have enough cap space to, to sign him outright yep like like, to me, if I were the Hawks, the best way to get Andre Drummond, if you want him, if you think he's your guy, is to just wait until wait until free agency. So if you're the Pistons now, what do you think of this move? Like, this to me says that they're willing to actually look into blowing it up. I think blowing it up for them is, is the right decision. For example, at the numbers we've been talking about, I would not want to re-sign Andre Drummond. I would rather roll it out. And a big part of that is also my discomfort with where Blake Griffin is physically. You know, like, when a player is over 30, as as skilled as he is, when a player is over 30 and has lower body issues, especially if they seem recurring, then probably not going to say, we can build, like, we can use them as a cornerstone in whatever timeline we want. So, now, if, you know... If I was in the key decision-making for the Pistons, what that means is I would say we're not thinking of 
Blake Griffin playing 70 games as the centerpiece of the 2020-21 Pistons. And then if that's if that's the logic you're making and we're seeing this this year, then they're not good enough to compete. And if that's if that's the place, then Drummond is probably not in the right spot to bring you in. So then I would consider moving him. This is the analog to the idea that I've talked about before, which is if you are not planning on if you think a guy's going to a pending restricted free agent is going to get more money than you're comfortable paying him, then you should trade them while they're still extension eligible. So that's kind of the idea. The idea is it's better to move early than late if you don't love somebody. And if the Pistons are there with Drummond, I, I fully support it. And they, you know, what's what's interesting about Detroit, they've been in purgatory. There are a couple teams like this. They've been in salary purgatory for so long that I don't think people realize their books actually aren't that bad. Yeah. And re-signing Drummond is exactly how you change that, how you, how you, how you make their books less tenable. And so if they can get out of it, if they don't think they're good enough, I think that would be a proper evaluation for where they are. And then also if you trade or just don't re-sign Drummond, then Blake Griffin costs a bunch of money, and but he's not such a huge portion that it prevents you from doing what you want. If the second highest paid piston next year is Tony Snell at $12 million, they're fine. You know, like that, yeah, that's, not a, that's not a big deal. And so then Blake Griffin, he has uh, – the 2021 season and then in he could be either be a free agent in 21 or pick up a player option for 30 for 39 million which i think he would and so yeah. then not a big deal you know that you're, you're totally fine and then it becomes the if he plays great if not so be it and they already have derrick rose under contract for next year they could even trade that for an asset if they want to or they could keep him around because he's been great and well here, here would be go ahead here would be my case on making moves now so I think if I'm the Pistons right now, I want to position myself for potentially being able to take advantage of my flexibility in the summer of 2022, right? Because what they can do, they can actually do quite a bit in that summer if they really wanted to. But to do that, you need to be able to get the star in place. Like you need to hit on a draft pick like an Anthony Edwards. You need to hit on a draft pick next year like a Cade Cunningham. Is your argument that it'd be better to do to target 22 because it gives them more bites at the apple in terms of the draft than if they tried to do it for 21? Because 21's yeah. a really good class, but if, the right. can't, if you can't get to the front of the line, it's not as valuable. Right. If I was them, I, I would want to target for 2022 and beyond. Um, th- this is a situation that I think just needs a lot of work. They're going to get Reggie Jackson off the books this year. Um, you know, It seems like Andre Drummond is not going to be on the books next year if you could get something and the interesting part about Drummond now is there are reports now from I think Vince Goodwill that there are like five teams that have had Pistons conversations about Andre Drummond right so I wonder if Atlanta is serious about this I wonder if you could make a case that you do end up getting someone like a Cam Reddish in a deal like this. And if you can, like, great. I would absolutely love to do that. Like, if, if you could get Cam Reddish and that Nets pick, yes, go for it. Like, that's a deal you make tomorrow. If Let's you could get you one of the that. two, I'd be pretty happy. See, I don't know if you can sell... I don't know if you can sell just the Nets pick in a bad draft to your fan base. Drummond's been there forever. Theoretically, I think that they're going to think he is willing to re-sign potentially or pick up the player option, right? Yeah, well, so, wait, here, here's the other really interesting part. I of think that, it's that a hard sell. Okay, basically. so, so here, here's the point I want to make. Remember that for bad teams, you want to you want to use the wins column, not the loss column, because you can make up losses. The Pistons right now, as we are recording this podcast, they have 12 wins this season. Right. The only teams that have fewer wins this season are the Wizards, the Hawks who would be getting Andre Drummond, the Cavs, the Warriors, and the Knicks they could get into a much better draft pick this year. Like, this isn't, and yeah, this isn't the most inspiring draft or anything like that, but, like, they might end up yeah. being able to sell this before Drummond even hits free agency. Yeah, I 1,000% agree. 1,000, 1,000% agree. Uh, if I was them, I would 100% be looking into making this move now. Like, I, I would not even think twice about it, and I would try and do it in January, not do it in February. Yep. And I would be making, I, and I would also be making the move to, like, finish it now. Uh, and I would be making the decision, I am moving from Andre Drummond. I am moving on from this. We yeah, need and, to... and the other thing is, you want to, with the centers in particular, because it's such a large supply, and 
maybe I'd be maybe there's more demand than you thought. It's better to be a, the first mover because I don't yes. the supply is yep. so heavy that you don't think there's ever going to be that crush. You know, that situation where, oh, God, like we need a center. The last guy on the market is going to get a bunch of money. It's the opposite. It's it's that there are too many players. And so you want to move before everybody realizes the supply is, is higher than, than that. So yeah, moving early is better than agree. play. Thousand percent agree. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a smart move. The Pistons, you can reasonably sell a fan base on. You have Luke Kennard. You have Sekou Dumbuya, who started last night, which, great. Um, you have Bruce Brown. And still have Blake, and he's, I mean, you you still put Blake Griffin on the posters, and yep. fans understand that if he can play, he can be a positive for them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that's about all I got on this potential move. The other guy I wanted to talk about on this podcast, and I want to talk about Philly as well, uh, but more than that, I want to talk about Chris Paul. Chris Paul, to me, is having an absolutely exceptional basketball season, and I feel like nobody is really talking about it. Like if you look at what the Thunder are doing and if you look at why they have been successful this season, and this season has been a success. They are 19 and 15 right now. Uh, they are the seventh seed in the Western Conference and they are, you know, pretty real ways above the Spurs. Like they are four and a half games clear. Like the difference between uh, Oklahoma City and the Spurs is currently bigger than the difference between the Spurs and the Pelicans, who, by the way, sneaky playoff team, the Pelicans, when they get Zion Williamson back, would not surprise me if they made a run. Um, it is so impressive to me what Chris Paul has been able to do this year while getting no discussion whatsoever. He's averaging, and for me, this all came up because when you watch Oklahoma City games, you watch Paul, he comes out pretty well in the first quarter. Then he kind of, you know, I don't want to say rests, but like, it's very clear. He's almost 35 years old and he's kind of taking, you know, some time to build up. And then once he starts his rotation in the fourth quarter, he is the best player on the court. 75% of the time, I would say it's genuinely that high Uh, against Dallas on new year's Eve. For instance, he just straight up out dueled Luka Doncic. He just got to his point at the elbow every time. It is so lethal from that mid range jumper at the elbow that it's basically unstoppable with the way defenses play now. Um, if you play drop coverage, he's going to hit you before you can get the contest. If you switch, he's going to beat the big every time. Uh, if you try and play like the weird hedge and recover defense that the Bulls do, he's just too smart for that. He's going to beat you every single time. So I just think it's worth giving Chris Paul some appreciation at a time when he he has gone forgotten this season, I feel like. Like, to me, I can't re- – I don't really think anyone has discussed him as an all-star point guard this year. Like, I don't think anyone really has him in the all-star game right now. Like, would you agree with that? Like, I haven't yeah, seen you don't, that discussion. You don't, you, don't hear much, you don't hear much buzz. I mean, it's a little early for that. But, yeah, I mean, he, he's getting it. But I think, yeah, there's there, – the way that I would phrase this is – Like, he's not, even the, he's not even the point guard on their team that gets the most publicity. Yeah, because that's Shay. And and I, I so a couple different points on it. Well, yeah, Chris Paul's having a fabulous year. Um and he's also you know, he's taken a step back defensively, but he's still a better defensive point guard than most a vast majority in the league right. and I mean I'd say he's still one of the one of the best there. And then he's just a capable he he's such a capable steward and I've had people in my mentions the last little bit, especially because Nate and I just did awards, talking about Billy Donovan's potential for Coach of the Year because – and a big part of that is you know, the easiest way to win Coach of the Year is for a team to dramatically exceed expectations, and the Thunder being over 500, that certainly qualifies. However, my counter to that, and this is why I had the Thunder over as one of my best bets, was yeah. I thought they were more – the, 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 why they're defining expectations is not that they're being better coaches, that they're more talented. And Chris Paul is a very good basketball player. Steven Adams is a very good basketball player. Gallinari, same thing. Like, those guys aren't necessarily sexy because they're such known commodities, and they are succeeding in ways that are not surprising. But that, to me, is the is the the through line of the Thunder this year, and Chris Paul is very representative of that. And so that's one big point, and I agree with you. I don't know exactly where he is in the league hierarchy, but he's having a wonderful year. But this gets into a really interesting question, and why I evaluate trades from each team's perspective separately, including at the Athletic, is because, to me, when you think about the Chris Paul-Russell Westbrook trade now, 
the Rockets argument is more complicated because of the idea of a championship window and the personality clashes and all that kind of stuff. But from Oklahoma City's perspective, they acquired a player who this year has been better than the player that they gave up. He is on a more favorable contract. He is on a the player they acquired is on a more favorable contract because it is a year shorter. The money is exactly the same for the years they have, but it's a year shorter. And they acquired draft picks. They got they got assets in from the Rockets in that deal. So from their perspective, I mean, so they got a swap. I believe it's a swap in twenty one, and then picks in in twenty four and twenty six. Remember, the Rockets will look dramatically different in twenty four twenty six. Great piece of business by Sam Presti to go deep with. When teams are certain in the present and uncertain in the future, you go for the uncertainty. David Griffin did the same in L.A. Um, So it is such a great piece of business, like the Paul George trade, from Sam Presti's perspective, because really they got everything they wanted. And Chris Paul is good enough that he helps make them better, but not so good that it jeopardizes Shea's future or anything like that. If Shea needs to have the ball in his hands, you can marginalize, even though he's the president of the Players Association, you can marginalize Chris Paul. And so the Thunder, somehow, despite weakening their own draft pick this year, then versus expectations, let's call them, I think they're in an even better circumstance, and Chris Paul's a big part of the reason why. So I'm going to throw some names at you in terms of just all-star game in the Western Conference. Okay. I, th- I think it's pretty clear that LeBron James, Luka Doncic, Probably Damian Lillard, right? Yes. Like we should feel good yes, about Damian Lillard. Lillard. Um, Anthony Davis, certainly. Kawhi Leonard, certainly. I would imagine Paul George makes it, despite the or the subdued start. Would you agree? I, I would think so. Yeah. I think Donovan Mitchell probably makes the team. So that that's seven guys right there. And there will be a couple Who, bigs. We have, we haven't talked as much about bigs, but they'll they'll be in there, of course. Sure. Is there? Anyone else that you can mention? I, I believe I mentioned Harden, too, right? Did I mention Harden? If he didn't, I mean, that was pretty self-evident. Yeah. So seven or eight we're at. It, I can't really name anyone else that I think has been better in the West this year than Chris Paul. And I understand the numbers don't, like, bear out that he has been better than Brandon Ingram. Like, Brandon Ingram right now is averaging 25 points a night while shooting 49, 41, and 86. Uh, he's averaging well, well, here, I'll, seven I'll rebounds this, and four. I'll frame this in an easier right. way for people. Remember, there are always at least four guards, and then often a fifth gets one of those kind of flexi spots. Harden, and then we have to get in. Harden and Lillard, to me, are definitely above Chris Paul. And then if yes. we're going to count Luka as a guard, he does too. I mean, Luka's an MVP candidate. Which but we shouldn't, could, by the way. Like you could argue Luka as a forward. I think he defends more forwards than guards. Um, I, I haven't right. I haven't run through the uh, the models and and how they see his position. Anyway, so let's well, say for me it's that, more of a balance question, like a roster balance question. Like if I was, there are just more guards that are good than more forwards, so I would just yeah, qualify. That, that's Luka that's as fair a too. But so so let's let's for the sake of the sake of the conversation, let's put Luca as a guard. So that's three. You definitely need to have at least one more, but you're probably going to have two. I, off the top of my head, I don't think uh-huh. of anybody who has a definitively better case. There are others that can be argued. Sure. Donovan Mitchell is, is among them, to be sure. Um, but especially I probably with, would take Mitchell over Paul, but yeah, and the, the Warriors, I mean, the Warriors guards not being available does open up more spots than we've really ever seen. But yeah, yeah I mean, I think you could make an argument for him. I mean, I would definitely make an argument for CP over Russell Westbrook, if that's going to be the spot. So yeah, I mean, even if... And, and remember, the Western Conference guards have been a murderer's row. It's also super sad for Mike Conley that the, <laughs> the, the, the time the field opened up for him, he just didn't take it and was hurt and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I think Chris Paul has a reasonable argument. Yeah, the Thunder's offense right now when Chris Paul is on the floor, 9.4 points per 100 possessions better than when he's off the floor. This is a 112.4 offense when Chris Paul is on the floor. Right now in the fourth quarter, Chris Paul is averaging seven points a game while shooting 55.2% from the field, 40.5 from three, and 97.4 from the line. And when you remember that, like, most of Chris Paul's jumpers in the fourth quarter are, like, pull-up mid-range jumpers, that 55.2 number is just bananas. He he has been, I don't know if he's been the best fourth quarter player in the NBA this year. Probably has not been, to be honest. But I don't think you can get to five that have been better than Chris Paul this year. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty remarkable remarkable thing. And remember, I mean, so CP at this point, he I think he turned thirty four. Is that right? 
Um, I think he's about to turn 35, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so can, he's 34 now. He will turn 35 in May. He will turn 35 yeah. in May. Uh, I, I should remember this. He's two weeks younger than I am, so that's pretty easy. Um, and Danny so, LaRue, Chris Paul, you know, I'm, feels like so you've done some I'm, I'm almost exactly the same age as Wall Dang, which is fun because he's basically functionally retired now. So, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that he had a full career and is now retired, and, and I'm just – doing this. Just getting started. Um, just getting started. Yes, just getting started. Um, but but so for CP, then this gets into the interesting question. I mean, I so I wrote a piece for the Sporting News years ago arguing for the Clippers to trade Chris Paul. I didn't see what happened with the Rockets coming where they basically opted the opt-in and trade. And a part of why I advocated for it was that I thought he might leave. But another part of why I advocated for it was there is this orthodoxy, because it's correct, that small point guards do not age well in the NBA. And there was this idea that a, a bunch of us had, which is basically like, is Chris Paul this generation Sean Stockton? Which is a player who, the general through line of small point guards not aging well, just doesn't apply to him, at least not for a long time. And we're getting closer to that just being true. Yeah, I, I think he's like unquestionably going to continue to age well. He's just, he, he's so good, he clearly takes care of his body in a ridiculous way. Uh he he's so smart. His jump shot has so drastically improved over the course of his career. Like he is an elite level jump shooter now. And that's a case I've been making for years. And, you know, people will bring up other guys. Like I think Chris Paul is probably one of the 10 best jump shooters in the NBA because the value that you get out of him as a pull up threat, you know, be it from three where he's been a 40% guy pretty consistently over the course of the last four years or from the mid range where he's just absolutely lethal and deadly uh, whenever he gets that pull up shot. He's just so effective. He's one of maybe the better way to put it is he's one of the 10 most effective jump shooters in the NBA. Yeah, I I think I'd have to run through it a little bit more, but I think there's, there's an argument for it. And so then you get into the question. I mean, he's been a, a good fit for the stutter team. He's been very important of, yeah, I mean, I, I would say overall, even as, as good as Chris Paul has played, will he be worth it's 41, a good question. 41 million next year and 44 million in 21-22? Probably not. I mean, that would be a big, big surprise considering how much money that is, and we don't know where the salary cap is going. However, yeah, how underwater do we think that contract is, realistically? Uh, like, it's underwater just because he is, like, the highest paid player in the NBA, essentially. But it's not like – like, he's a $30 million player. Or at least, like, a, maybe, like, a 20 to 25. And so then that's – you know, it's it's underwater, but it's not hilariously so. Because if you think that he's going to age at some point. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Fair. Like, but, like, you could say, like, he's $30 million this year, 26 next year, and 23 the year after that or something. And you're something in Something like that. But so then – then. Then, from Presti's perspective, or more more interestingly, from another team's perspective, is he more tradable? Is he more desirable? And when you remember that the basic test for a point guard is, does putting them on your team mean that you're going to have a decent offense? And, I mean, there's a decent amount of evidence now that, yeah, sure, Chris Paul can still do that. So then, are there any situations that you think of, you know, point guards are a little bit more numerous, but there are a lot of teams that are still hurting. Any teams that you think could really benefit from his his specific brand of, of point guardness. Yes, there there is one particularly that I think becomes the title favorite if they get Chris Paul. It is the 76ers. The thing that they need so, above so that, all... Are you it simplifies their offense? Is that the idea? Yeah, it simplifies their offense and they need a fourth quarter closer. Like that's the number one thing that this team requires going forward. They need someone who can create offense on the perimeter in the fourth quarter. Chris Paul, as we've kind of enumerated throughout this podcast... Uh, is one of the premier fourth quarter closers still in the NBA. And think about what it would do for Chris Paul's legacy, by the way, if he was to go to Philadelphia and lead this team to a title in a trade while being the fourth quarter closer. Well, and also, I mean, so the most interesting part of Chris Paul, so I will note that he functionally cannot be traded for Ben Simmons, which would be a natural trade considering they both have the ball in their hands a lot. That cannot happen this league year because of the uh, because Ben Simmons signed that big extension. He is it's the it's actually the poison pill provision, not BYC base year compensation. But he cannot functionally he cannot be traded this year. However, um, what I think Chris Paul does is he brings a a pick and roll collaborator, which a well Embiid, who doesn't take as much off the table. And so yeah. 
the the transformational change is what it does to Philadelphia's half court offense. And remember, yeah. Chris Paul is also a wonderful defender for the point guard position, much less for his size, which is incredible because he's so strong and so smart. So, which that actually exactly... makes their defense better across the board because Josh Richardson is often kind of tasked with dealing with point guards, and Josh is a really good defender, but he's better at defending wings. Yeah, so I mean, if this trade is going to happen this league year, I would guess it has to involve Tobias Harris unless they wanted to include Al Horford, which would be interesting optically. Um, but incidentally, the, the Sixers actually do like theoretically have enough enough ways to make that work if they wanted to. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, so part of for me why I would think it's an interesting idea is that I'm lower on the Simmons-Embiid pairing. I think that their whole is less than the sum of their parts. And so that is a, and so, and so Paul, that, that, calculation shifts and I think that could be a positive and maybe the way it works is you you know you do one to set up the other but I think again this is more of a move I would make than I think Elton Brand will but a couple other teams like I, I just kind of spitballing that I think could be could be interested depending on how they want to approach this Orlando has a lot of kind of like they have a lot of money on their books but I mean I think Chris Paul makes a lot of what they do make more sense so I think that could be could be positive. He would be a capable steward for the Knicks, which I think could really just make a world of difference. And no, off the top of my head, other than maybe the Blazers, who have different incentives, the, no team has more filler salaries than the Knicks because they have just all these guys right. on short-term contracts. So they could make a move happen. Oklahoma City then basically gets out of Chris Paul's money, and the Knicks spend a lot of money, but at least get somebody who can make life easier on RJ and Mitchell Robinson, which would be right. really, really good for them. Minnesota, I think he, as much as he, it would be fun to have another like abrasive personality replacing Jimmy Butler there, at least then you have somebody who makes light, who, who makes the gears work better, which is not what, yeah. what Andrew Wiggins does. Um, the salary there would get complicated if Wiggins is not included. I don't know if, if Presti actually, in many ways, Andrew Wiggins is kind of the because uh, of his athleticism might be somebody that Presti would be interested in. Um, Andrew Wiggins for Chris Paul is a very interesting trade construction. Yeah, and especially when you just because like the there, there's no indication on what anyone would think about it involved. <laughs> right, and, and it would also be interesting because both teams have the type of sweeteners. If they could agree on valuations, that would kind of make it make sense. Yeah. So, so that would be there. Uh, that that's really the the kind of the primary ones for me, especially with Malcolm Brogdon doing so well in Indiana. I don't think they need another guy. I think that they're they're pretty good. Um, I mean, the other one theoretically, but they can't cobble together a salary. Would be I would love to see Paul and LeBron play together. I've wanted that for a long time, but I don't think we're going to see it. Yeah, um, I can't I think it's, really yeah, so figure that out. To be honest, I yeah, don't I don't think maybe, that that maybe can happen. Could make it work in somewhere like Chicago. Um, I think he would make a world of difference there, but I mean, Kobe, they drafted Kobe White for a reason, and I think they're gonna they're gonna give the latitude. So yeah, there aren't that many teams that are like hungry for point guards, but I think a lot of them would be would be well served to at least kick the tires. I mean, the the uh, there's very obvious one too, like Phoenix is intriguing. Yeah, I mean, I think Devin Booker has has done well in the kind of the the role that they've given him, and then Rubio is cheaper, <laughs> a lot a lot cheaper. But yeah, I mean, yeah. you could uh, you kick the tires. I would say that at, at bare minimum, and maybe San Antonio. I mean, I don't know exactly where they're going, but right. Chris Paul. You know, let's say especially if Pop wants to coach one more year or two more years or whatever, Chris Paul makes that job a whole hell of a lot easier than their current roster. If you're Philadelphia and if you're Oklahoma City, really, if you're Oklahoma City, are you willing to do Tobias Harris the? conglomeration of 2020 picks that Philly kind of has and a 2022 first round pick for Chris Paul. If I'm me and I don't care about Tobias Harris's feelings and the optics of trading somebody that you just signed who wants to be there. Yeah, I I think that I think that I would. Um you do create problems with Ben Simmons' role, but Remember, well, I mean more from OKC's perspective. Like, is that a well, deal yeah, from, that you from, even from, accept? From OKC, so I mean, Tobias Harris makes he makes less money over than this year and the subsequent two, and then makes thirty about thirty eight million per year in the years that Chris Paul will be a free agent. So yeah, I mean, it is longer term money. But what I like about Tobias Harris for the Thunder is he's. Kind of the the idea of a hybrid forward is actually kind of interesting for a team that doesn't know where they're going. 
because then you can just get whoever you want and hopefully they'll fit around Tobias Harris. And we've talked, you and I, on this podcast on my own about how forwards are incredibly valuable in the league due to scarcity and everything like that. So, yeah, I, I think that I would, especially if you project that the salary cap is going to grow between now and 22, then his $37 million, you know, it's it's a lot of money, but it's not it's not catastrophic because remember that the Thunder, after Steven Adams expires next year, they don't have a lot of big salaries on their books. Shea right. will eventually get there. I don't think Terrace Ferguson is going to warrant that kind of contract. And then anybody they draft over the next few years, they're not going to be there for years. So you don't have to worry as much about that, like Baisley or whoever else. So, yeah, I, I think I probably would. Um, incidentally, I think it might make the Thunder worse in the short term. And so I wouldn't – it's not a no-brainer for me because I'm lower yeah. on Tobias Harris's overall value. But, yeah, it's an interesting idea. That, that to me, is intriguing. And then, like, there's always been the Al Horford-Billy Donovan connection – Right. So like you could theoretically try and come up with a construction about Al Horford and Well and remember uh, there's already Chris been Paul. some murmuring Horford is unhappy and that's a difference between right. Horford and Tobias Harris too. Now moving the funny thing is trading Tobias Harris for Chris Paul improves the team's defense and trading Al Horford for Chris Paul does not. But if Horford doesn't necessarily want to be there then, yeah, maybe. And remember, Horford, there were rumors that he was seriously, not only the Donovan connection, there were rumors that he was seriously considering OKC before Kevin Durant left. Yeah, I wonder if you could do Al Horford, two picks, and, like, Zaire Smith or something. Because you'd need a little bit more money to make the cash Mike work, Scott, right? I think Mike Scott could, could probably make it work. Right. Just interesting. It's just an interesting yeah. construction to me. Mm-hmm. Because Chris Paul fixes a lot for Philadelphia, I think. Let me see. I, I will say that even though he is much older, given the salary stuff, I would much rather have Al Horford for the Thunder than Tobias Harris just because saving ten million a year is a lot. And in the last yeah. year And remember that Horford's salary is partially guaranteed and the stuff is winning a championship and at least for the next couple of years the Thunder probably aren't going to be in that mix. So yeah. then you get it. You That's might, a good point. If, if you need to, you might get half out of that last year too. But I mean, I would probably rather, knowing what we know right now, I would rather have Al Horford for twenty six five than not have him for fourteen five. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's also, a good point. also note to players: um, always smart to have a high but not full partial guarantee on a year because then it makes it so much harder for teams to decline it unless you suck. You know, like, really if does. it's 2 or $3 million, it gets complicated. But if it's, like, $18 million or $10 million or something like that, they're going to pick it up. That's just the way it works. Unless you almost you're, have to. That's it. And unless, unless you're so far gone, and then at that point, you should be thankful you're getting that money in the first place. Right. Um, I think that's I think that's all we got. I, I do want to just quickly shout out here, Bet Online. As you know, Bet Online is a big, big part of the Vicini household. Because we enjoy gambling here. Football and basketball seasons are in full swing. we got football playoffs coming up. You get into the game with our exclusive sports betting partners, betonline.ag. You sign up today, you receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. You start betting college or professional football. we still got some bowls left. Uh, every spread, every total, every winner or loser. Straight bets, parlays, teasers. Go all the way through the season. You got a wild number of constructions that you can make here. Get the fastest two market odds, updates, and payouts with our new sportsbook partners, betonline.ag. Head on over to BetOnline today on your mobile device to join and use that promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Danny, do you have anything else here before we get out of here? You mean to promote? Or like just know, to talk, talk about, about yeah, yeah. Is there anything else exciting I mean, going on in your life? I feel like we've gone for long enough. We 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 I think I think we've gone for long enough. I'm I'm interested. This is this weird range in the NBA season where I think we kind of have a sense of where teams are, but it's still a month until the trade deadline. So the ebbs and flows of like winning or losing a couple of games are going to feel like a lot. And also, just yeah. a small point that I've been I've been banging on a little bit. The just super weird structure of both conferences having kind of like a top six that looked pretty good and then everything else being incredibly depressing is strange because you think about how that affects thought process. So some teams will look at that and say, oh, my God, we can make the playoffs. That's pretty exciting. And then other ones will go, yeah, but what's so great about being a seven or eight seed, getting a worse draft pick and getting worked by a team? So I'm going to be very interested in 
how front offices respond to this structure because I think we already know what the structure is going to be at the bottom. And then as you and I talked about, I think that was on Real Jam Radio, we recorded these basically back-to-back, was teams that can – what teams think they can vault themselves into championship contention. So I think the next month is going to be really, really fun. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I release my top 100 movies list uh, – or top – 30 movies list. I've seen now like 115, 116 2019 releases. I would have 1917 on there. Have you seen 1917 yet, Danny? I haven't seen very much. I have not yet seen 1917, but I heard it's, I heard, including from you, that it's very good. It's very good. It is. So I'm going to ask you a question because it seems like they're going for a similar visceral feel. Did you, as an overall cinematic experience, was it better or worse than Dunkirk? So we, my wife and I, Laura, watched Dunkirk the day before we watched 1917. It is exceedingly different in regard to the way it is edited. And it gives it an entirely different feel as a film than Dunkirk. It is very chronologically and different in terms of time as people who've seen Dunkirk. I'm not going to spoil 1917, but in Dunkirk, which is two years old now, I feel okay doing this. There are three different stories being told throughout Dunkirk. 1917, there's just one story being told. Um, Technically, like when I watched Dunkirk this last, you know, two days ago or whatever, I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. I, I, I saw it like two years ago for the first time, like right when it came out and I thought it was amazing. This time I thought it was even better. Like that movie is going to be one of, I think it's going to go down as one of like the 20 best movies ever. I I really think it's just that exceptional. 1917 is a little bit different, but it is equally as technically impressive just in a different way. And that's what I will say. That's exciting. I mean, because I, I was very impressed with Dunkirk as well. So I, I and considering the subject matter, even if they're even if it's handled differently, it's somewhat similar. As you said, there, there are reasons those two movies will probably be compared a lot over the next 50 years. Right. And I don't think 1917 is quite as good as Dunkirk. I will say that. But that comes from someone who, like I just said, like I think Dunkirk is just absolutely exceptional. 1917 is also exceptional. And in many ways, technically, it is I don't even know if I would say better than Dunkirk, but it's certainly Dunkirk's match in many ways. Um, It is, yeah, it's just really unbelievable. You should go see 1917. I think it goes wide on January 10th um, for people wondering why you can't see it yet. But uh, I think that's about all I've got uh, going on right now. Uh, Danny, do you want to plug anything? I can plug the Real Jam Radio that will probably actually come out after this. I think you turn around your show faster than I do. Um, but you and I talked about draft prospects. We talked about the weird 2020 offseason, 2021. And then also dunked on Nate and I in the last couple of days released our awards for the season so far through basically New Year's Day. Also our top 10 prospects in the NBA. That means players 20 age 23 and younger so there's i'm Mm. sure that will generate a lot of thoughts and arguments and all that that was released on thursday and um my written work is going to start ramping up again for the athletic i was i was away for a bit so things toned down and i have a bunch of irons in the fire that will be coming out over the next you know couple weeks god i am uh i'm looking through nate's mentions right now um that's never the most fun thing to do there are some there's some angry people there are some Always. very angry people, particularly the Mitchell Robinson people seem very angry. Which is funny because Knicks fans have so much to look forward to right now, and they have no animosity that they should be spreading around in the the, the virtuous chain of screaming. Man, that is uh, this is this is Nate, Nate's mentions are fun right now. I would implore everyone to go look at Nate's mentions. Um, this has been the Gate Three Podcast. I'll have some stuff coming on the Athletic at some point this coming week. Uh, I have a mock draft coming up next week. I think we're going to update that. So uh, that's all I've got. I'm not going to go crazy with plugging stuff. Uh, But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.